and you thought vinyl left. You're listening to the Vinyl Community Podcasts. Everything vinyl. Hi, this is David Bianco. Welcome to the Safe and Sound Texas audio excursion here on the Vinyl Community Podcast. Today, I'm going to be going back in time, reflecting back on how I got into music and how I got into records, also known as vinyl, and why it's brought me here to 65 years of age and I'm still engaged in it. I never really thought about it a lot, but I reflected back and realized there was a lot of music in my house. Now, my parents weren't musical, but they liked to listen to music, and they liked to dance to music. They actually went to several couples' homes during the week and practiced and improved on their dancing. Now, I can't say that I remember a lot of times where they went dancing per se, but Anytime there was a wedding or an event, they were always very good at dancing. So I was used to hearing music. And for me, I just grew up with it. And in listening to it, I got interested. And it was the early days of transition of rock and roll. I was born in 1957. And we know that basically rock started around 1955. So it was really around the early years. So when I got to be three or four years old, I started to be able to uh, hear more and remember more. And I can remember very distinctly uh, Ricky Nelson's Poor Little Fool song that came out. Uh, And I got into Ricky Nelson quite a bit. And in doing so, Uh, He was very popular and really brought about some hits when he moved from uh, the Imperial label to DECA in 1963. And then in 1963, he had a few hits and they were they were really important to me. And I remember getting those 45 RPM records and they were late 1963. And unfortunately, in the U.S., On November 22nd, 1963, we had the tragedy of the assassination of our president, John F. Kennedy. And I can remember how quiet and somber everything got. And the house got quiet and the music stopped. And life just really seemed to be on hold. Everybody seemed really, really numb. Uh... Thanksgiving, uh, U.S. holiday was right around that time, and and nobody really talked. It was very much a, a time that, that I remember extreme sadness and trying to even understand it. And coming home from school early that day, uh, when it got announced uh, on the uh, system, the PA at the school, uh, that school was going to be dismissed early and why it was dismissed, we didn't know until we got home. And so uh, basically the country was in a funk and, you know, music was something that really kind of was a, a backseat at that point. And the reason I bring this up is because on December 24th, 1963, That was the day that a DJ decided to play a song by a new group to the U.S. called The Beatles. And he played I Want to Hold Your Hand. And that basically opened things up and people 
really had something that was a little bit joyful and a little bit up, and it was going to be Christmas, and it really opened the floodgates. Capitol Records in the U.S. had not planned to release that record until January of 1964. But because of the popularity that swept across the country on Christmas Eve and on Christmas Day, Capitol Records had to go into emergency pressing of these records, these 45 RPMs, and started to get them out before the end of the year. It was a tsunami of song that hit. And the flip side, I saw her standing there, also was played. So we had this one-two punch coming in from the Beatles, and it really lifted the veil on the country and the funk that was going on. And I remember the buzz around it. And, you know, I can remember my parents reflecting on, oh, look at these kids with the long hair and... You know, what is this about? And, you know, a little bit of concern about what it was. But nobody could deny the music was uplifting and the music changed the subject a bit. And it really was the right thing at the right time in the right place. And because of it, it swept in the British invasion, as we all know. So artists like Ricky Nelson, a U.S. artist, really uh, kind of went uh, behind the spotlight at that point. And, and uh, music from someone like that was totally overridden by what was coming in from Britain. So I remember very well the whole change that occurred and when the record came out and you know, getting the 45. And, um, and, and at that point, I was like uh, seven years old, not quite seven. And um, the whole thing with Ed Sullivan is, is we all have heard the history of that and the craziness around it and the whole. And, and then the movie came out, A Hard Day's Night, and everybody, I remember going to the theater, and it was, it was just really high energy, like I could never really um, uh, explain, but it was just there. And, and when people talk about the Beatles and their music and all, um, for me, it has this extra dimension of the reality of what it was when I was alive as a child and what the changes were that came about because of it. And so that part of the music has a much more indelible stamp on those of us who experienced it and those of us who had to to live through the sorrow that we did in late 1963 and then the swinging of the pendulum in a positive direction because of music. So it's really kind of interesting in that regard and the Beatles are looked at a lot of course for the depth of their work and the amount of uh, records they came out with in a relatively short period of time and their own songwriting and that's all true. But for me, I always remember that shifting of gears that occurred essentially in the public and in the psyche of the country that occurred because of the Beatles' uh, magnificent uh, breakthrough that came in just when we needed it there at Christmas of 1963 and then in January and February when that February they came on Ed Sullivan and the anticipation with the records coming out and the albums it was just a a 
a tsunami. Songs were coming out from previous releases. Uh, she Loves You was knocked I Want to Hold Your Hand off of the top spot. And it had been released on a Philadelphia label earlier in the year called Swan. So, I mean, the Beatles had tried to penetrate through. They were on a label called VJ, which ironically is a label that was started in Gary, Indiana, where I grew up. And this label also brought us the Four Seasons back then as well. And and so those records started to, you know, flourish. And, and of course, there were all sorts of legal issues at that point. But, but you just have to, in a way, have been there to understand it. When you see the way the the crowd reacted at the Ed Sullivan show and you see the scene in a hard day's night when the Beatles are running down a sidewalk next to a train station and all these people are mobs are running after them. Uh, I was on a tour in the UK here a few weeks ago and the gentleman that ran the tour, Richard, uh, knows a lot about it. He was around back then, older gentleman, and this is what he does. And he said a lot of what they did was kept secret supposedly and yet a lot of people showed up when they were starting this filming and it was very natural and innate what happened and so this was really uh what was going on at the time and it was more than just in the u.s but certainly my experience is what happened in the u.s and the way it changed everything the music changed the focus changed the groups from outside of the u.s uh especially out of Britain, became popular. And it was, it was a situation where really things got energized in a, in a new direction. And it really did help the country in so many ways. And I can remember buying these albums and, and wearing them out. I, mean, I bought multiples of these albums back when I was a kid, and I still have a few that are sealed because um, I, was, I was wearing them out, playing them, literally. And, you know, that was why maybe some of the ones you see in stores are pretty rough because uh, people really did play them. And frankly, the equipment we had to play them on uh, wasn't of audio file nature, at least certainly what I had as a kid was not. And so uh, this music just started to really germinate. And as it did, I got more and more invested in it. I remember, you know, getting Rolling Stones records, getting Roy Orbison records, uh, anything that was in the top 10. I was really tied to the top 10 slash top 40. Uh, we had a local uh, station uh, in our town called WLTH in Gary, and we had a, the big station was WLS, which was AM 89 or 890 out of Chicago, which was really a big station nationally. I think you could hear it even down in Texas here at night when the uh, signal was bouncing off the ionosphere. So, uh, but they had a top 40 and, uh, you know, that was how I followed things. Singles were really big back then. Uh, the albums weren't uh, as as big. That started to grow as time went on. But everything that was marketed really was through the hits that were made, the charting that it did, and how it performed. And, and those were, in fact, the catalysts. There were a lot of groups uh, that really had just one or two songs, but then had to go in and record other things to justify an album. So it was a totally different time in that regard. 
but it was it was very exciting, a great time to have lived. I was I was very young but very engaged, and I knew at that point in my life what I wanted to be was a disc jockey. I always really had that as uh, my goal because of my love for music. And we had a radio station in town and I'd go stand outside the window where the studio was. You could literally see the, the guy on the air right there in front of you. And uh, later in my years of becoming toward teenage years, uh, I actually helped out at that radio station. But I hung around there and I got to know some of the DJs. And it was just something that always was fascinating to me. And it also was something that I really enjoyed as it related to the music. Now, the music, of course, started to grow and evolve as the 60s uh, wore on. And, and some of that music got into the psychedelic realm, and, and that was an interesting aspect of it. I can remember Incense and Peppermints by the Strawberry Alarm Clock on Uni Records. That was one. We Ain't Got Nothing Yet by the Blues Magoos. There were just certain songs. There were Chicago-based groups, the Buckinghams had kind of a drag and don't you care we had the new colony six out of that area which was really big we had the cry and shames with sugar and spice so i mean there was a lot of musical activity in the area and the region where i grew up and it really was something that i was drawn to to the point where it, when I had my system at home and I would play records, I would simulate being a disc jockey and, uh, you know, even recording things to make commercials uh, later on when I had cassette tapes and things of that nature. So uh, for me, it was always just an evolution of music and of growing in the music and learning more about it and getting the uh, the records in my hands, the physical records in my hand, there were places that were across the street from where I lived. It was called a dime store at the time, department store. And, and they used to get records that had been used. They came out of a jukebox, uh, cause you used to have jukeboxes in your, you know, in restaurants and clubs and bars and things. And they would have 45 RPM records in there. People would pay, a dime for one song or a quarter for three to play those songs. And then after that record had cycled and maybe not been as popular, it would show up in this bin for 49 cents. And we would, uh, we would get those uh, used records out of there to, to save a little money because singles back then were about 79 cents or something like that. Uh, I can remember when the novelty song Hello Mutta Hello Fada came out by comedian Alan Sherman on Warner Brothers, um, that record was a dollar, and that was a big deal. But I remember people and myself were in line that morning when it got released. Uh, you know, the way people wait in lines for iPhones. I was waiting in line for that, that novelty song that had been played on the radio and then got released. And it was a it was a dollar, which was more than we were usually used to paying. So um, these are just memories that I have that are strong and and they really are part of the architecture of how I got to where I am in terms of music. Now, as groups like the Beatles evolved into music that was 
uh, maybe a little more experimental, we would say, or a little bit out of the popish side, things began to change. A lot of the songs early on, you th- look at the 60s, you look at the Beatles' early stuff, and a lot of people's early stuff, those songs were you know, usually in the two-minute range to two-and-a-half-minute range. There's even a few Beatles songs that are literally under two minutes. And uh, so that was one of the things that you could rotate more records on the radio and play more uh, per hour because of that. But as time went on, songs got a little longer, messages got a little more important, and that was an evolution that occurred in the industry as well. And as time went on, we also, of course, started to move away from AM radio to FM radio or album rock when we started to get toward the more elevated rock capabilities like the Led Zeppelin, early Led Zeppelin in 69. And you had Clapton and Cream and all of these all of these evolutions that were coming out of the growth of music of the later 60s. And you still had the popish side. You know, you had the Monkees and their television series, and you had the Partridge family and their television series in uh, 66, 67, 68, in that time frame. So there was kind of a bridge that was, was being built toward this other music while retaining some of the pop roots uh, that were there. But some of these new rock roots also brought in some bluesish kind of sound. And we see that in early Led Zeppelin albums, for example. And so the evolution of this, along with the Beatles and the Stones evolving what they were doing, really matured music as it went. It gave longer songs that had more content and context. And the whole industry just kind of moved and matured along a line toward coming to FM radio in the 70s, which then was what we call album rock or playing songs maybe that weren't on the top 40, but were big songs on an album. Take Stairway to Heaven, for example, right? Uh, Not exactly a top 40 type song. It was a long song. I can remember when Hey Jude came out. Seven minutes, 11 seconds. <laughs> and that was a long song. The Other Side Revolution was like three and a half or just under four minutes. And so, um, you know, these things are all part and parcel of the way things were moving and the way that we saw music in a different way as we started to bridge into the 70s. And so the pop ilk stayed more in the AM realm and the album rock moved more into the FM realm. And of course, what we also gained as that was happening was stereo because stereo was starting to uh, live in the early 60s, late 50s. And uh, the Beatles' first single in the U.S., the one that was released on December 24, 63, I Want to Hold Your Hand, was their first four-track tape of uh, four different tracks being recorded. So um, this was another evolution. Records were in mono for the most part, and then stereo began and became uh, in the market, but the majority of records still were mono, and then stereo really started to take over. And as stereo took over, then we had in the FM realm the ability to broadcast in stereo in two channels. And that was a big deal 
because the sound quality was much better. AM was usually through, you know, one speaker, of course. It was a little tinny. We had transistor radios. Um, we When you had a set of... Uh, a bigger set that was a radio and maybe it had a little better sound to it, like some sort of Zenith type um, quality with a quality speaker in it. It still was AM radio and it still was mono and it still didn't have the, the total capability. And a lot of those records, especially 45s were compressed. And so uh, there wasn't a lot of dynamic range to them. Whereas the album cuts were, and they were a more melodic, uh, available through FM and the sound was much better with a dynamic range that one could appreciate. So these evolutions also were taking place. They were taking place in the equipment that we had at home, the ability to listen in stereo. I can remember building a Dynaco amplifier when I was a teenager with a neighbor of mine who was an electronics guy can remember getting Advent speakers very early and a dual turntable. So, um, you know, as we got into a little more, I won't quite call it audiophile, but definitely getting out of the really cheaper record players uh, that were there that were, you know, damaging our records to some degree. We now got into separate components and things of that nature. So I got into all of that as things started to evolve. And I also started going to concerts in the 70s as I got into high school. First concert I went to was uh, uh, of a major band was The Who on their Who's Next tour. I saw them in Chicago, and uh, I, you know it was a it was a great uh, set, and and a lot of the songs you know were from that most recent album. So you can imagine uh, that uh, Baba O'Reilly and Who uh, Won't Get Fooled Again, uh, Behind Blue Eyes, they all just sounded. Fabulous, but the most impressive thing was when um, when Pete Townsend flew across the stage in that loud scream toward the end of "Won't Get Fooled Again" from one side of stage to the other, and I'll always always remember that. Uh, I can remember seeing America at Airy Crown Theater at. Um, uh, near Lakeshore Drive there in the McCormick place. And I was like in the third row and it was just an awesome sounding place. And, you know, you wondered, you know, how could anything sound better than this live music? So these are the evolutions that I experienced as I grew from, you know, a six, seven year old kid starting to get records in uh, 63, 64 and evolving through into the 70s. And, and that is kind of where I cut my teeth. I really enjoyed all of that music and stayed really up to date on it and spent just about all of my money. I've made the comment before. Some of you I know listen to Michael Fremer. And at the beginning of uh, many of his shows, he has uh, he uses a voice of his mother. Wreckage. You've got more wreckage. You bought more wreckage. Well, to be honest, that sounds exactly like my mother exactly the same thing in my household was being said as I tried to sneak records into the house, into the basement, because every last nickel I had, um, I spent on that. And when I started working at a Dairy Queen in uh, 1972, you know, all the extra money that I didn't put into savings, you know, went into records. And the good news is a lot of those, almost all of them, I still have with me. 
I've kept them over the years. I've transported them uh, multiple states, and and um, and it really is something that takes me back. Songs take you back, and seeing a record takes me back. Um, I can remember where I was when I hear certain songs, and remember where I was the first time I heard them. And, you know, and these are the things that generate the connection that music has for most of us and why it is so important in our lives. One of the things I have always kind of been able to do is spot talent when it comes to music. Uh, When I was in high school, I can remember uh, buying albums, the first releases by bands like Queen, Foreigner, and Kansas, and playing some of that for friends of mine, and a lot of them would say, uh, they're not going to do anything. They're no big deal. I, I don't see what you see in them. And I always felt like uh, I just had that uh, connection to be able to know that, and a connection to know, you know, what might make good singles off of an album in order to promote the album as well. So I was a little bit experimental in that way, trying to buy records by new bands uh, to see what they were and to see where that might take them. And I was very benefited by that in the way that I have a lot of originals, a lot of what we call OGs of albums in first pressings, because I would go out and seek these kind of things out. Uh, and sometimes it had nothing to do with them even having a single because uh, a band like Queen really didn't have a single off their first album, and neither did Kansas. So these were just, um, I'll say, almost instinctual kind of things. And sure, I bought some that didn't work out, that weren't the greatest, but by and large, it seemed like most of the ones that I got, I still have, and they were bands that did, in fact, have a life and have some impact. So it really was an interesting time, and looking back on that is very relevant. And as I got out of high school and went into college, that was where my interest started to grow related to equipment and related to better sound and that type of thing. And so about 1977-78 is when we started to see some of these what we call now audiophile records come out, Mobile Fidelity being uh, one of the first uh, labels that I bought reissues on. Uh, and I really found their records to be uh, of a higher quality. And definitely the uh, surface noise on the record was much less. Uh, many of you may not even know, but we had what was called a gas crisis back in the mid-70s, 74, 75. Part of it was related to the Middle East and the Iranian hostages. And so we literally had these huge gas lines And so one of the components, of course, uh, in making records in the PVC is petroleum-based. So the price of that went up. And so what some labels did was they recycled vinyl. So they took old records and they crushed it, and then they recycled it to make uh, new records. Unfortunately, when they recycled it, it also had the labels in there as well. 
So you would get a brand new record and you could see these little white areas in their splotches. And they actually were, in fact, pieces of paper and they were ingrained into uh, the mold and the record. uh, And so it would cause a defect, cause potentially a skip, definitely cause a noise. So it was a it was a great boon to have this virgin vinyl, uh, super vinyl out of JVC, for example, coming out of Japan for these mobile fidelity releases that were coming out. And then there were other labels, of course, uh, that were involved in, in releasing these kind of things as the 70s and early 80s went on as well. But I bought better equipment back then. I bought better uh, records in terms of quality. I, I definitely focused a lot on my speakers and my cartridge for the turntable because the speakers and the cartridge really, I found, make the most sonic difference in uh, the sound signature in a system. And so uh, getting those to be aligned better to what I really find to be a a really good sound is what's important. I used to hang out at hi-fi stores. A lot of these hi-fi stores are the one that sold MoFi. It wasn't like I went into a sound warehouse or anything and bought MoFis. Generally, they were only sold through these dealers that had higher-end equipment at the time. Now, when other labels got in, uh, like CBS did its um, half-speed mastering or uh, Soundworks, those would come in sometimes into a generic store, a sound warehouse, or another place that sold records. But a lot of these high-end records, so to speak, I mean, high-end, they were $17, where regular albums were like 8 so they were about twice the cost. Um, they would only be sold mainly through these um, dealer out, outlets that were selling higher-end equipment, uh, electrostatic speakers and separate amps and uh, turntables and speakers and, and those types of things. And that got very, very popular uh, in, in that realm at the time. And so going to these higher quality vinyls gave me a better appreciation for the music. And I always, you know, I talked about wanting to be a DJ. Well, when I was in college, I actually was a DJ at the college that I went to and also had some experience outside of it at a major station in Chicago, which was an oldie station at the time, played 60s music. So... I lived that dream a while, but financially it really wasn't uh, working out. And I had to kind of say, well, I've got to put on my big boy pants and kind of get a different kind of job and and make more money. Uh, But it never turned me off to the music and to the equipment and to doing uh, things that I really enjoyed in that arena. Uh, But at the same time, I did have a chance to live that life. I did have a chance to, to live in that. And it, it was very uh, rewarding in some ways and challenging in other ways. I believe that for me, it was something that tried my uh, moral compass a bit because there were things going on to try to get music on the air uh, by certain labels and things of that nature. And um, it really was a time where 
problematic things were happening in that regard. And there also were other influences from the outside that were coming in that weren't really the direction where my head was at. And so I just kind of had to make a choice there. But the good news is uh, I was able to keep up my hobby. I was able to uh, work in a way that I earned more money so that I could, in fact, invest more in records and, and the equipment. And it really brought about an interesting time for me because it really took me from uh, being just a general consumer into more of I don't want to use quite the word audiophile, but I was definitely getting equipment that sounded better and getting uh, uh, pressings that sounded better. And that became kind of uh, the new next step for me as I got into the 80s. Of course, the 80s also brought with it the compact disc. And uh, a lot of um, what was going on in the industry really pushed the compact disc partly because, uh, of course, uh, you could get more time on a disc than you could on two sides of an LP. Um, You didn't have the issue with surface noise or skipping pretty much or anything, although a a CD can skip, but generally not. Uh, And so I did, you know, get a little bit on that bandwagon. I never abandoned vinyl, but I did get on that bandwagon, bought a lot of CDs, and really got into that particular domain as well. So, you know, regardless of what the media was, I got into cassettes in the 70s as well, but more for recording uh, than it was for purchasing albums on cassette. I didn't buy albums on cassette very much at all. I would buy them on album, uh, an album, an LP, and then I would record certain songs off of it onto a cassette and create what we used to call a tape mix, right? Where you mix different songs uh, onto um, a tape and, you know, have that kind of continuously going. And it was a big thing with, you know, guys would make mixtapes and give them to girls and try to you know, impress them and and those kind of things. So it was a whole genre that went through the 70s um, with that uh, before the CDs came about. And uh, once the CDs came about, that really started to be the death knell to vinyl um, because they had portability, which was really uh, nice because albums aren't the most portable things in the world. Um, Um, They could uh, play on portable players and be taken with you very easily. Uh, Eventually, they got into the cars as well. Um, I can remember owning a Nakamichi tape deck, and it was the head unit that went into the dash was actually just the cassette uh, bay, and this bay would pop out, and you would drop the cassette in it and then push it in. The actual electronics and the AM FM tuner and everything else for it was in a separate box from that unit because that unit was all about the cassette and the motor. The heads on that tape unit literally moved up and down as it started to read the tape to get what's called a perfect azimuth alignment. I mean, I remember this tape deck for the car was $1,200, and we're talking um, in 1982. 81 in that time frame so that was a fair chunk of change uh, back then but I was single and I could do it so I was 
you know, I've got all the equipment in my car changed out from the standard stuff that was sold with it. And, you know, there used to be a lot of these aftermarket uh, things for cars back then, uh, which today can't be done nearly as much because they mold these things now into the entertainment or infotainment systems. But back then, that was a huge industry to change out your uh, radio and put in a cassette, uh, add speakers, add a power amplifier, add a subwoofer. I mean, that was a really, really huge market back then. And, um, you know, there were guys I knew that the value of the system they had in their car was worth more than the actual car was. Uh, and so of course some of those got ripped off and they were ripped off because of the sound systems they had in it. So yeah, I had to have an alarm system in my car on top of it because of that, that Nakamichi, uh, which, um, I wish I'd never gotten rid of it, but I did. Uh, but it was a very unique, um, it could, it could rewind a 90 uh, minute tape in about 24 seconds. If I remember right. I mean, it had a huge flywheel for the, uh, for the motor and it would just take off and you could hear it. And then as the tension started to change toward the end of it, it would slow down on itself. You could hear it kind of coming down in speed so that it wouldn't snap it. Uh, uh, the tape, the cassette shell, uh, in interiorly wouldn't snap the tape because it was going so fast. So it was an amazing piece of technology and, and it was, uh, it was very interesting, but then we got into CDs in the car, of course, and now you really had, you know, the flexibility, you know, to play whole albums and to have a really clean sound. I mean, you know, the cassettes would reflect whatever the vinyl had, so if the vinyl was a little noisy, then the cassette would have that as well. Even with Dolby, it still would have some of that inherently with it. So the CDs brought about a cleaner sound, but somewhat digitized sound. The early days of digital were not as pristine and accurate as, as they have gotten to be over time. And so even though I bought a lot less records from, let's say, the later 80s on because they weren't available, I never got rid of my collection. Uh, I bought more CDs during that time. And it wasn't really until the resurgence of vinyl in the 2000s um, that, you know, I started to go back and bring out my turntable uh, and use it. So there was a quiet period there with vinyl uh, that I had in my life. But again, the music always stayed and it always was there in one media form or another. And all of these formats, you look at these and you say, I bought this album and I bought basically a license for this this uh, song or this particular album on this media and that media and that media and that. And you realize how many times over you've paid for that. But, you know, we have that today with reissues and we have it with high-end records uh, that we buy. And then, uh, you know, maybe we bought a better copy of it. Uh, sometimes we trade up. Sometimes we keep what we had. But this whole evolution of music and evolving it has been in the mix for all of these decades. And so the thing that really is most interesting now is the fact that as we age, people of my generation age, you know, some of this music is going to die off in the sense that it's not going to be relatable anymore. Now, the Beatles will be there. The Stones will be there. 
Led Zeppelin will be there, Pink Floyd. I mean, but there are other artists, some of these artists that had hits in the 60s, even those that maybe had, you know, more than one hit and weren't just a one hit wonder, but they are, you know, going to go by the wayside. The Four Seasons, Bobby Vinton, you know, just to name a few that just come off the top of my head. People aren't going to know who those people are. And that's just part of the evolution of music. But it all makes up where we got to in terms of evolution and bringing music through the decades in different forms and in different fashions. And all of the same generational issues that existed today existed then, exist today related to what kind of music is that? That's crazy. I don't like that. That's awful. Well, I can assure you my parents were saying the same things about that kind of music in the 60s. No doubt about it. I mean, the whole free love. I mean, a lot of the music that I listened to back then, when I listen to it now, I had no idea what those lyrics were about. And now they make me blush a bit in some cases, but I had no idea as a kid what I was listening to, what I was singing, what it meant. You know, Gary Puckett in the Union Gap was a group. They had a woman, woman, young girl, get out of my mind, lady willpower. I mean, these were songs about things that I really didn't understand or know. And so these things continue, albeit maybe in a little more overt verbal fashion these days. But it still is something that the music is a reflection of life. And it is a reflection of the time to some degree. And it provides that imprint that exists over time. And just like with paintings and things, some survive uh, the generations and the centuries because of them being so majestic, the Mona Lisa or other things like that. So it's the same way with music. So music is a bridge Music is to me something that helped me through my young life. It gave me a friend. It gave me a meaning to do things and to, although it was isolating in some ways, I felt safe with music. And I think that that's an important thing. That was music was kind of my best friend and music also related to my friendships. The people that I got to know generally were people who liked music as well. I mean, I had a good buddy in high school and man, we went to see Jethro Tull. I can't tell you how many times we saw Jethro Tull because it was just, you know, the group was so animated we liked the music and and we liked the theater, so to speak, of Ian Anderson and that and that that was a great formation. Uh, June first, nineteen seventy five, was the day I graduated high school. That night, that night, I was at uh, uh, Chicago Amphitheater to see Chicago and the and the Beach Boys together. Because back then, Chicago had released an album, Chicago 7, that had the Beach Boys in backing vocals when they recorded up at Caribou. And uh, and so they toured together and played separately and then together. And they played like seven nights consecutive in Chicago and sold out all of them. You know, so these are memories of things that, you know, that really stay with you. And they are the reason why the music is so important. And so now reflecting on the new vinyl world that has come about in the last 10 to 20 years, there are so many new people in this, in the vinyl community, 
younger people who are either just buying as they like, or they're collectors, or they're running stores, or whatever it might be, it's brought about this new connection. And it's brought about the experience now that they can have to hold something in their hand that's large enough to read instead of on a small compact disc or a cassette case. They actually can touch it, feel it, open it if it's a gatefold. The record experience that, the needle drop effect, all of the things that we really have come to know and love and expect and assume have now been brought forth and they are now part of a reinvigoration of this industry. And that's a great thing. There also are reinvigorations within the digital realm and, you know, the SACDs and the multi-channel and those kind of things. Although it is a bit of a niche, it is in fact something that delivers another expansion. We had quadraphonic records back in the 70s, and that didn't last, partly because there were three different formats, the equipment that was required, uh, it really just didn't really have anywhere to go. But now a lot of these players can do all of it. And this is where it's headed in the digital realm. And again, there's a market for that, but it's not quite what it is now for vinyl that we're seeing and the appreciation for that and the growth and really the experience. Because when you can have both an auditory experience and a physical experience and a visual experience, it's much richer. And in the end, I think that's what we want in our vinyl community is really the experience and the camaraderie that we can get with other people uh, who are into vinyl. It's unbelievable when you travel the world, you really start to see it uh, in other people that you can meet and other people you talk to and you have this common ground and it really makes for an enrichment that you can experience in your life. So these are the things that make up where we have gotten, where I have gotten in my life as this has evolved now with the channel and now with experiencing many new people and environments, going to record shows. It just really has really evolved into something that I think everybody that is involved with can gain from. And it is something that we all should appreciate and be thankful for all of the artists, all of the technical people that bring this, all of the labels, especially those who really work hard to bring us higher end products, these, these mastering engineers and these, these companies uh, that operate in this space like Chad Kassam at Acoustic Sounds, we, we need to really recognize that that is in fact elevating the industry and as the labels can provide the content and we can have quality coming out of them, which is a challenge. That is where we can keep the industry moving and satisfying this voracious appetite that exists right now for vinyl. So those are some of my reflections. I've really got a lot, obviously, many, many years, but I hope that gave you at least a little tour on this Safe and Sound Texas audio excursion. This is David Bianco. Thanks for tuning in on the Vinyl Community Podcast. Take care, everybody. And that was another trip 
around the turntable. Thanks for listening to Vinyl Community Podcasts.